Well, hey, church, it is so good to be with you. Welcome today. If you're a guest, my name's Ethan, one of the ministers here, and I'm so glad to keep us moving forward in this series, Live the DNA. Uh, Before I do that, though, one thing I was supposed to say, um, Nathan talked about trying to serve all generations. One of the ways we do that is through our preschool. we got a killer preschool here, like the Tennessee rating system. It's in the top rating thing or whatever. It's great. Um, We do have some openings, though. If you're interested, we need assistant teachers and substitute teachers right now. Um, So if that's the kind of thing you're interested in, reach out to the church. um, Talk to Susan and Bowden. You can email her. Uh, She'd love to tell you more about those opportunities. Um, But today, we are continuing our repeat of a series that was already preached at this church in February of 1922. A hundred years ago, this series was preached, and we're bringing it back. It's an oldie, but a goodie. And, And the series is really simple. It's just, how do we follow Jesus? That's the thing he told us to do. How do we, in specific and practical ways, Follow Jesus. And next week, we're going to end the series um, just the way they did in 1922 with sort of a challenge opportunity, a commitment opportunity, uh, where we're going to get to say, yeah, I'm going to embark on these very specific practices. We're going to make a three-month commitment, not, you know, just to kind of say, I'm going to do it. And um, uh, the, the first practice for love God is to say, I'm not going to miss a Sunday. I'm going to be here every Sunday for the next three months. I'm just going to make that a commitment. And then uh, under love everyone, the commitment we're going to challenge one another to is to to join a serving team here inside the church or a serving team of the church that serves in the broader community. Why is the challenge a serving team and not just go be nice people? It's because, first of all, if you serve on a team, you have more fun, you get more done, and the work you do lasts longer because there'll be people to keep it going even when you can't continue it. So we're going to challenge one another in that way. Uh, Last week we talked about make disciples. The challenge for that is to get in a group, whether it's a Sunday school class or a small group, get connected with other Christians for the purpose of being discipled and the purpose of discipling others. And then this week we get to the fourth element of our DNA. Tell your story. We just say that, that if we are followers of Christ... We have got to be telling our story of God's faithfulness and God's love to a world that needs to hear it. And and again, next week, you're going to have an opportunity to make a a very specific commitment. I'll tell you about that a little little bit here. Um, A very specific commitment to be obedient to Jesus' command to tell your story. But before I ask you to tell your story, I want to, um, to tell you a story. Uh, This story is from a book of the Bible. Uh, The book is 2 Kings. If you want to follow along, you can open your Bibles, 2 Kings, or look it up on your phone, uh, 2 Kings. Uh, The story starts in chapter 6, although we'll pick it up in chapter 7. Chapter 6 of 2 Kings tells a story about a terrible time for the city of Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. God, during this period, God's people were divided into two small nations. Samaria was the capital of the northern nation. Um, the Arameans and several of their allies had attacked the nation of Israel, and they had conquered most of the nation, and they had laid siege to the city of Samaria. And it was awful. In verse 25, we discovered that they have started slaughtering their horses and donkeys so they could eat these animals. Animals meant for work, not for food. 
in the next few verses, we get a terrible story of one mother so overcome with despair that she killed her own child. It's a picture of total terror and hopelessness throughout the end of chapter 6 of 2 Kings. There was one person in the whole city who did have hope, the prophet of God. His name was Elisha. He tells the king, if you will just have hope and tell the people to have hope, our God is about to rescue us, but nobody else saw it. Everybody else was lost in despair, preparing to kill themselves or kill somebody else, just hoping to survive. And that's where we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 7. Just outside the city gates were four men with leprosy. Outside the city gates, because their disease prevented them from going in, And the Aramean army prevented them from leaving. And so they were stuck right on the edge between the city and the armies. And they say to each other, why should we stay here until we die? If we say, let's try to go into the city, well, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we got no food here, we'll just die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If by some miracle they decide to let four leprous Israelites live, well, then we live. And if they kill us, well, then we die. And that's what's going to happen anyway, so we might as well go try it. So at dusk, they got up, and they went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. And they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. The victory was already won And nobody in the city knew it. So these men, the ones who had leprosy, when they reached the edge of the camp, they entered one of the tents. And they ate and drank. Then they took silver and gold and clothes and they went off and hid them. And then they went and found a different tent. And they did the whole thing all over again. Now I want to pause the story here to make sure we understand this moment. The four lepers are feasting and the city is starving. The four lepers are rich and the city impoverished. The four lepers rejoicing The city weeping. The four leopards know that the victory has been won and the enemy has been vanquished and the whole city is certain that all is lost. 
These four lepers probably felt like cultural outcasts, like they didn't fit in because they were lepers, not welcome anywhere because they were different. But in that moment, they feasted, the city starved. They had every good thing and all possible hope while the city had nothing and was trapped in despair. I think a lot about that moment in this story. Because it sort of feels like the relationship between the church and the world. Yeah, we talk about how we, you know, we feel a little outcast from the world and we don't fit in and they don't want us. Okay, that's awkward. I get it. But we feast, and the world starves. We have confident hope, and the world is hopeless. We know the promise of forgiveness, and the world is trapped by all their regrets, and all their mistakes, and all their brokenness. We know there's a cure for loneliness, and the world is crippled with isolation. Every person you meet is weighed down with a burden that they cannot bear themselves and will eventually end in death. And you know the one who can carry that burden. We feast. The city starves. What do we do in a moment like that? I mean, Jesus knew what he wanted us to do. He actually left very specific instructions for his people. Um, You can read in the very beginning of the book of Acts. In fact, we'll go there now. We'll come back to 2 Kings. Don't worry. We'll finish the story. But if you turn to the very first chapter of the book of Acts, um, you discover the book of Acts is sort of like a continuation of the gospel of Luke. And it actually begins with the very end of Jesus' ministry. It begins like this. In my former book, that's a reference to the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to the heavens after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. This is their last conversation. They they were introduced to Jesus... When he said to them, hey you, 
follow me. That's the way the whole story began. The command of Jesus, hey you, follow me, that is still his first command to every single person alive. It's his first command to you. Hey you, follow me. And their relationship with Jesus made it all the way to this day where his very last earthly command was, wait for the power of my spirit and then be my witnesses. And every one of them knew what he meant. Now, we, of course, get confused because what we religious folk like to do is we like to take perfectly normal words and turn them into religious words and then pretend like we don't know what they mean. We, love, we do this with lots of words. We love to do this. And so we've done this with witnessing. We took a perfectly normal word and turned it into a religious word, and now we're pretty sure we don't know what it means, but it has something to do with signs and tracks and standing on busy street corners yelling at people. We know it involves that. Except that's only after we got a hold of the word. When Jesus used the word, it was a perfectly normal word, and everybody knew what it meant. It was from the world of the courtroom. A witness is just somebody who knows some truth, some little bit of truth, and they tell the truth about the truth that they know to be the truth. That's, that's the whole thing, right? Like it could be an eyewitness. And like, what did you see? And they tell what they saw. No more, no less. If they tell less, that's contempt of court. If they tell more, that's lying, that's perjury. They just tell what they know. It could be an expert witness. This is someone who maybe they didn't see it, but they studied it. They know things about the world. They've studied carefully, and they come, and they tell what they've studied. This is the physics of it, or this is the DNA of it, or this is the the logic of it. This is what we've studied. It could be a character witness. You know, maybe they don't know that situation, but they know the people involved, and they can testify to the character of the people involved. Involved. This is what the word means. And everybody who heard Jesus knew what the word means. We're the only people who turned it into something weird. Like we pretend like we don't know what this word means. And in fact, this discipline of knowing some bit of truth and telling the truth about what you know to be the truth, it is the most natural human thing. We do it all the time. It's the simple act of having an experience or having studied and arrived at some knowledge And then you share your experience with someone who needs it to give them help or hope or a word of warning, you know. Uh, This is how you find out about a good new restaurant, right? Somebody says, oh my goodness, we ate here. Their hamburgers were delicious. You should try it. That's witness. This is how you know where to get the best tomatoes at the farmer's market. It's how you find an honest mechanic. It's how you know which movies to avoid. This is why so many of you, even right now while I'm preaching, are playing Wordle right this minute. You know you are. Admit it. I, I know. And if you're not playing Wordle yet, let me be the first to testify. It's fantastic. You should play Wordle. It's amazing, okay? The only way we know about it is because somebody said, oh, have you played Wordle yet? You should play Wordle. Blah, blah, blah. Play Wordle, you know? I just, I just did my Wordle for the day in between services right now, so I'm caught up, okay? So um, this, this, is what, this is what, it's the most natural act. In fact, we are so dependent on the testimony of others to what they know to be the truth, that when people don't share their testimony, we get upset with them, right? You know, like you, you, you go get a meal and it, you pay a lot of money for it and it's terrible and you tell you, oh my goodness, don't eat at that place. Their food's awful. And the friend says, oh, I know, right? Oh yeah, it's the worst. Like what? Why didn't you tell me? That's what we say, right? 
Or, or you go watch a movie 10 years after it comes out. Oh, it's the best movie ever. You tell your friend, oh, my goodness, have you ever seen this? That movie's amazing. Like, oh, I know. I've seen it 10 times. What do you say? Why didn't we actually expect people who know some truth that we could benefit from, we expect them to tell us. And we're bitter if we find out they didn't. You know, I, My mom recently got sick, and we've got, gotten some good news recently. We're praising God for that. But back when it was real scary in the beginning, one of my favorite things that happened was the number of people that came up to me and said, Hey, my friend had that same disease. And they did the same treatment your mom's doing, and it went great. It wasn't as bad as people said. They made it. They're doing fine now. Ten years later, they're still strong and healthy. That was, that was just a little testimony, right? They didn't know everything. They weren't a doctor. They didn't pretend to be a doctor. They hadn't, they, but they had their little testimony, and that was great. And then I did talk to some doctors. The science on this is like this, and here's the way it works. And I, I appreciated that testimony just as well. See, Jesus isn't asking us to develop a new skill of bearing witness. We already have that skill. We are a witness-bearing people. We are a storytelling people. Here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't work for me. I was back in the office swapping cookie recipes with Gracia, and she was talking about how you got to use this kind of butter, and she was just bearing witness, giving testimony to what kind of fats make for good cookies. You know, maybe you've got a testimony like that, right? Jesus isn't asking us to learn a new skill. He says, you're already witness bearers. You are storytellers. You are testimony givers. Just make sure the testimony you give includes me, is what he says. Be my witnesses. Tell the story that you have to tell about me. And, and I guess what I want you to see is, I believe, and God's word teaches, that this is your place in the world. You are feasting in the tents. All right, so you're still a leper. Okay, I'm not saying your life is perfect, you know. I'm not saying everything's roses. But you found the feast. You are storing up gold and clothes for eternity. And the city starves. You know, what is the testimony you have? I don't know. Maybe what you know is that God's church can give a lonely person a family. You don't know much. You haven't studied, but you know that God's church can give a lonely person a family. Or you know that, that, that God's word can save a marriage if, if they both submit to what it teaches and just to trust God's word and love one another and forgive each other. Maybe you know that. Maybe you know that, that there is hope for life after death. Got to go to a funeral recently. It was such a beautiful thing, you know. There was no despair in the whole room. Not a person in the whole room was in despair. Not a person in the whole room was broken by this tragedy. Because they knew something that the world doesn't know. And the world desperately, maybe that's what you know. Maybe you know God heals. Maybe you have studied the Bible and you know it's reliable, and you know how to answer the questions of the skeptics. Or maybe you just know that Jesus is king, and Jesus gives peace to troubled souls in troubled times. Whatever you know about Jesus, 
whatever you know about the church, whatever you've tasted of God's goodness, that is news that somebody needs to hear. In fact, it it sort of reminds me of our four leper friends feasting in the tents of the Arameans. Jump back with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. There they were in, you know, who knows how many tents they'd gone through at this point. Verse 9. Then they said to each other, what we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we keep it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called to the city gatekeepers, and they told them, we went into the Aramean camp, and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night, and he said to his officers, I'll tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they'll surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. The king says, this news is too good to be true. We get that, right? But one of the officers answered, Let's at least check it out. Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be just like that of the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who were doomed. Let us send them to find it. He says, you know, if you're right and it's a trap, worst case, they'll ride to their deaths. But we're all going to die. That sort of sounds like us, doesn't it? We're all going to die. So let's send them out to find out what happened. So they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan. They found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. And the messengers returned and reported to the king. And the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. The one hopeful prophet was right. Just have hope. The Lord is soon to save us. But they didn't find out about the salvation until four lepers walked back and shouted into the city. Four lepers feasting in the tents who realized they knew the victory was won. I wonder... What if they'd stayed in the camp, even for an extra hour? What would have happened in the city in that hour of despair if they had not gone back to announce a word of hope? How many would have starved? How many more would have committed the atrocities we see described in chapter 6 in their despair and terror? How many would take their own life? If they had not gone back. Now now to be clear. They had no way of knowing if they would be believed. They were lepers. Outcasts in their society. It would sound too good to be true. And it did to the king. 
But that was not their job. Their job was not to make sure they were believed. Their job was not to make sure they were trusted. Their job was just to make sure they were heard. Because they told the story they had to tell. And that's what Jesus says to us. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, that's your hometown. In Judea, that's your home nation. In Samaria, that's the nation of your enemies. And to the whole world. He says, you'll be my witnesses. In your hometown, in your home nation, in the nation of your enemies, and to the whole world. We are the ones who feast. We are the ones whose arms overflow with riches, storing up treasure for an eternity. I get it. We're, we're still lepers, right? We're still fools and sinners and broken, and we've got all our own problems. I get that. But the city doesn't even know there's hope. The city doesn't even know the victory has been won. We know there's a king in whom we can have eternal confidence. While our world panics at the rise and fall of every nation. I just wonder sometimes, and I'm going to say this out loud, but I promise the main person I wonder about is myself. I just wonder what possible moral justification could we offer for keeping our mouths shut. That's what I wonder about me. As I look back at all the people where I could have told a word of hope when they needed a word of hope, I just wonder what possible justification could I possibly give for continuing to feast in the tents while the city starves, knowing the victory's won while the city fears defeat. I think we get confused on this. We think that, that our witness is to somehow we have to go tell the world that they're hurting and broken and hopeless. People already know that they are hurting and broken and hopeless. We spend our whole lives trying to pretend like we aren't and fake like everything's fine. But everybody knows that we're hurting and broken and hopeless and it always ends in death. Like everybody, that's, that's, my, that's not the secret. That isn't our secret. That is common knowledge. The secret is that the broken can be repaired and the hurting can be healed and that there's life after death. That's the thing people don't know. To bear witness is not to go tell somebody they're bad. It's to go tell them God's good. Martin Luther, I love the way he put it. He says, we are just a beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And then if they want to go, go with us to find the bread, that's on them. All we do, but, but we got to tell them we found the bread, you know. I think maybe, maybe some of us have resisted telling our story because we don't want to come across judgmental, right? Well, great. Then just don't be judgmental. That'll do it. Just tell the story of the blessing you've experienced in Christ Jesus and through the church and trust that that's enough. 
You know, the, if, you know, if they quizzed the lepers, where did the Aramean army go? We don't know. Why did they leave? We don't know. Are they going to come back and get us? We don't know. All we know is the tents were empty, and we just had a pretty good night of eating. That's all we got. Here's what God's word promises. And I know right now, even right now, some of us don't believe it. But God's word promises that the testimony you have is enough good news to get somebody started on a road to Jesus. The testimony you have, as little as it may be, is enough good news to get somebody started on the road to Jesus. I'm not asking you to feel guilty because you haven't been a better evangelist in your life. I, I, I mean, I'm struggling with that, but I don't think God wants me to feel guilty. I think God wants me to feel motivated that there are people who need what I already have. I want to, I want to, in my life, I want to chase the opportunity to bless somebody with a word of hope. I was uh, in, a, in a small group, it was probably 15 years ago, up when I was minister in Maryland, and, and uh, we were talking about, actually, this text and uh, another text in the Bible where a, a dude gets asked all these questions, and he says, I don't know anything. All I know is I once was blind, and now I see. And we were talking about the power of a simple testimony and just as an experiment, the, the guy who was leading the group had people go around the room and said, um, he, he said, I want to hear from people who came to faith as an adult. Like, he were kind of focused in on that. And he says, tell me what was the testimony that got you to attend church for the very first time? And I don't have the whole list, but uh, I remember some of the ones. Um, one guy said, the testimony that got me to come was somebody said, you look like you need friends. You should come to my men's group so you'll have friends. That was the testimony that got him in the door. Another person said, I was uh, 22 and I wanted to be married. And somebody told me there were cute girls at this church. And so I went to the church because they said there were cute girls at this church. Uh, he got married 18 months later in that church to one of those cute girls. I'm not, saying, I'm not pro making no promises. I'm just saying that was his, that was his testimony. Somebody else said... I was broken after my divorce, and I told that to a friend, and they said, well, you know, I'm not a very good Christian, but I do know that Jesus saves divorced people. You should come. That was the testimony that got him. Nothing else. That's all he had. Somebody else said, a friend told me that they found hope in their grief, and I needed that too, so I started coming to church with them. I didn't believe in Jesus for 10 years after that, but... I was looking for hope in my grief. Somebody else said, I came because I heard the music was good. Somebody else said, I, started, I, I met Jesus in youth group. I started going to youth group because if you came to youth group 10 times, you got a free beach, beach trip. That was the testimony that got me. Somebody else said, I came for my kids. I wanted the church to teach them good character. I didn't really care about Jesus. And now today... I'm baptized and trust Jesus with my life. But the testimony that got me here was that they would help me raise my kids. See, you have good news. You don't have all the good news. You just got a little bit of it. But somebody needs that good news that you have. This is why we say tell your story. For two reasons. One, because if we use the word witness, we would all forget what it means. That's why you know, we all made, we've made up these weird meanings for that word. So we just say, tell your story. Because that's all it is, to be a witness. To, to, what is it you know about the goodness and grace of God? Tell somebody that. 
Tell somebody that. Make it real simple. I don't know much, but they're nice to me. I don't know much, but I believe there's life after death. I don't know much, but I grieve differently now. I don't know much, but my marriage is a little stronger than it was. What, what, just what is it? Just what is it? I will warn you, if you want to get serious about this, you might have to change your life. See, the lepers, they had to leave the tents, right? They had to get up and go back to the people of the city. The very people that had rejected them and left them locked outside the gates, they had to go back to those people to tell them the good news that the the victory was won. They didn't even know it. I mentioned earlier in this series that about a year ago, our staff started working on this Live the DNA Challenge because we didn't want to ask the congregation to do anything that we hadn't actually been working on for a while. And this one was really interesting. I've been so proud of our staff. One of the things we realized really really early on in this process is that we worked with Christians. We went to church with Christians. Our friends were Christians. Everybody we knew was in the tents feasting. That's all. We just went from tent to tent to tent to tent feasting. That's why preachers put on weight so easily, right? It's because that's what we do is go from tent to tent to tent feasting. And so we realized we would have to actually change our lives. I've been so proud of our church staff. We've, we've had uh, three or four of them have learned a new sport so that they could go meet people who play that sport and maybe share some of the good news. We've had several that have joined new clubs um, that, that, that just so they could meet people. You no know, clubs, unrelated, not Jesus' clubs, just normal clubs, so they could meet people. We've had people who have changed their family habits and family rhythms. Uh, we, I've just been amazed at this. And that might be what you need to do. Some of you will need to reorder your life a little bit to live out this part of the DNA. And, and, and maybe you think, no, they don't even want me. I'm a leper. You know, they, they, I'm an out, whatever. Oh, yeah, you are. But you're the one at the feast, and they're the ones starving. And I don't know how people who are at a feast remember people who starve and don't change their life somehow. I don't know how to do that. Instead, maybe we could just say, what if we could be the ones who told a hopeless world there was hope? What if we could be the ones who told a desperate friend there was rescue? What if you could be the one who told a a grieving family that there was an end to tears or or a, a struggling marriage that there was a way to build it back or just a skeptic trapped in their despair that there was truth they could depend on? Wouldn't that be awesome if you, if you could be the one? And, and you could be the one. That's what Jesus says. Go be my witnesses. Next week, we'll get specific. Uh, the challenge for this one is super simple, super straightforward. It's just the challenge is in the next three months, pray for somebody who needs Jesus and invite them to church with, with your testimony of why it's worth going to church. This is what I get out of it. You should come with me. That's the challenge. We'll talk about the details of that next week, but it's going to be real simple. Just if all of us did it one, it'd be, for some of you, it'd be the first time you've ever done that. For some of you, you've done it before, but we're going to all do it together over the next three months. Every single one of us, pray for one person and invite that person to come hear the good news. Go out into the city and let them know about it. Before I stop, though, I want to tell one more story. One more story. 
the, it's the sort of the story that makes all the other stories make sense. Uh, it's the story of Jesus. Each week, the center of our worship is a meal. We, it's called the communion meal. Um, hopefully you got uh, bread and juice on the way in. Uh, if you're worshiping online, track something down. The reason that meal is the center of our worship is because of the story it represents. And we don't want to forget the story. The story starts at the feast. Jesus and the Father, eternal, perfected glory. And the world in despair and chaos and darkness. And so Jesus left the feast. It is not good, the lepers say, for us to stay here celebrating while the city starves. Jesus left the feast, lived as a man with all the struggles and pains and temptations and suffering that we humans experience. He lived as a witness that death wasn't the end, that hope got the last word, that healing and life and restoration were possible, that sins could be forgiven and burdens could be lifted. He lived not only as the testifier to this truth, but as the accomplisher of this truth. We weren't super interested in what Jesus had to say, um, so we, we killed him. And most of the people watching that story were quite sure it was over. Even the people who had started to believe the story, even the people who had started to hope in Jesus, were pretty sure they'd been hoodwinked. Because he was dead. The one who said death wasn't the end was dead. And then, as they waited and wept, word came from three women that he was alive. And that the death we thought was his defeat was in fact his great victory. These women were the first witnesses, right? And they knew so little. They had nothing to say except, we just saw Jesus. They weren't even believed. The other disciples had to run and go see for themselves. But soon more and more people saw and more and more people believed. And then he said to them, now you be my witnesses. Tell the story of what you know. That's, that's, your, that's, your, that's the only part you're responsible for, is just to tell the story of what you know. Tell them that he died so that all of us could live. He suffered so that our suffering would end. He bore sin so that we could be unburdened of sin. And all those who have been reconciled to Christ, Paul writes in Corinthians, all those who have been reconciled to Christ are now given the ministry of reconciliation, called to announce to others. 
Right now, we're going to share in this meal together. We share first and most explicitly to remember the story of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. But maybe right now as we share, would you just meet Jesus in prayer? And would you ask that as you leave this place, you would do more than remember the story? And you would tell the story? Maybe you could just make that your prayer as we share this meal. Let me pray for us right now. God, we thank you that we can meet you again at the table. Where the story is remembered. May we remember that you left the tents for our sake. That we might be saved. That this good news we have now received is for everyone. And that the city is starving while we feast. And would we, would we awaken to the, the opportunity to go and announce the good news to the city. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.